Good morning. I'd like to invite you to turn to the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians. Those of you who are regulars here know that for the past few uh, months we've been working our way through this letter that Paul wrote to some followers of Christ in the city of Corinth. The book can be uh, dated somewhere in the middle of the, uh, of the first century, some 20 to 25 years after the, uh, the death of Christ. And though we have only come to chapter 14 in our studies together, I thought it would be appropriate this morning to uh, move on one chapter to chapter 15, and I'd like to read some verses from that, uh, that portion of this letter. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you were saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and I do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believe. The Bible tends to uh, speak directly about a number of issues that you and I don't like to talk about, much less think about, sin and guilt and death. When we get together to chat, we very rarely uh, discuss our sins. We may talk about our hang-ups or our dysfunctionality or our neuroses or our obsessions or our compulsions, but we don't uh, really like to to talk about sin. However, if we're really honest with one another, we know way down deep in our heart of hearts that there's something desperately wrong with us. We're not always sure what it is, but we know that uh, we're not what we ought to be. We know that we don't even live up to our own standards, much less uh, the standards of, of God. Someone has said, turn to your heart, it's the best teacher, and I believe there's a great deal of wisdom in that, in that truth. Our hearts tell us what uh, we might otherwise be unwilling to, uh, to hear, and they tell us that down deep inside we've, uh, we've gone wrong. That's why uh, we're attracted to some of the great moral teachers of the past, and, and, and very rarely do they say anything that's really original. Mostly they just... Uh, repeat uh, what others have, uh, have said. They just uh, tell us what we ought to be, and, and we know, we know. 
our hearts tell us. That's why when we listen to these teachers, there is a a resonance that's set up in our hearts, a a sort of sympathetic vibration. We we agree and we long to be what uh, we ought to be. And then there's the fact of, uh, of guilt, this uh, nagging sense that uh, there ought to be some penalty for what we've done. We know that uh, our actions are worthy of, of some sort of judgment. I'm always haunted by that uh, segment, and this was the week that was that showed the man walking up to a desk behind which... Um, Uh, David Frost sat, and uh, behind him were two doors, one marked heaven and one marked hell, and the man said, through which door do I go? And Frost said, you know. No one has to tell us that uh, we're guilty and we're worthy of judgment. Our conscience is somewhat flawed. In John Bunyan's uh, City of Mansoul, Our conscience is described as the watchman on the tower who shrieks hysterically when there's no danger and and then is silent or asleep when real danger approaches. And to some extent, our conscience is like that because the standard is a bit flawed. but, But yet, every once in a while, our conscience is right on the nose. And we look back on our lives and we see the debris that's strewn behind the lives of people that we've hurt and wronged in various ways, and our hearts tell us that uh, we've gone very far wrong. And then there's the fact of death, which we like to evade. We spend an enormous amount of time and energy trying to stave off the thought of death, but we really can't get it out of our, of our heads. In my 30 years or so of, of ministry, I've presided over numerous funerals, and I'm always struck by the sobriety of those occasions. People look very very somber indeed. As the philosopher in the book of Ecclesiastes puts it, there's more reality at a funeral than there is at a party, for there you have to face things as they really are. We have to face our, our mortality. We have to look death right in the face like the medieval monks that had skulls in their cells with the inscription, Sumus Moribundus, we're, we're going to die. And while we can dismiss the thought of death on other occasions when we when we attend a funeral, we're haunted by the fact of our own, own mortality. Sin and guilt and death, these are the issues that we don't talk about and we don't even like to think about. Now, these are the very issues that the Bible addresses. We think of the Bible as a, as a book of rules and regu- regulations and laws and do's and don'ts, and, but it's, it's, it's not that at all. The Bible is the good news that God has done something about sin and guilt and death, the three issues that that plague us all through our lives. Some of you may have seen the segment on primetime this past week. Uh, Ann Quinlan, who's a stay-at-home reporter for the, uh, or actually columnist for the New York Times, she was interviewed, and in one part of that segment she was shown addressing a group of gay advocates and and she said in the course of that, uh, of that lecture, no one wants to tell a 16-year-old homosexual boy that he's sinful. And I thought, no, no, no one wants to tell anyone that they're sinful unless there's a way out. And you see, that's, that's the good news. There is a way out of sin 
and guilt and death. The Bible is a book about the fact that God cares for people who aren't experiencing the life that they always uh, wished for. And that's the best news that I can imagine. Now, Paul uh, summarizes what he calls the, uh, the good news in, in the passage that I just read in terms of four statements. I think this is probably the earliest Christian creed that we know anything about. This is bedrock. This is a, a summary statement of what uh, Jesus and the apostles and the first century Christians believed and the message that was proclaimed to them. The gospel, of course, is much broader than these four statements. In the book of Romans, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. And then he proceeds to lay out 16 chapters of facts that uh, spell out for us uh, all the aspects and implications of, of the good news. That's the full, fuller statement of the gospel. But what you have here in 1 Corinthians 15 is a very terse statement of the best news uh, possible. Paul says he didn't originate it, he received it. And uh, this was what uh, was given to all of the apostles by our Lord Jesus. It was given by, by revelation. And this was the message that was preached throughout the early church. And there's no question that they believed it. The writings, there are a number of extant writings of the first century, and we know precisely what they believed. Professor Sakenik of uh, the University of Jerusalem was doing some ex- Excavate, uh, doing some excavating on the, in the valley of Hinnom, just to the south of Jerusalem, and he discovered a Christian uh, cemetery there, and they dug, dug up a number of little bone caskets, ossuaries they're called, and on the side in Aramaic, they found a number of inscriptions, and, and many of them read something like this, Jesus Salath, Jesus is risen, latter part of the first century. So, uh, whether you believe in the resurrection or not, whether you believe in the gospel or not, you simply have to believe that Jesus and the apostles and the first century church believed that uh, the good news that was that Jesus died for our sins, that he was buried, that he rose again, and that he appeared. Now, the first statement of the gospel is that Jesus died for our sins, according to the scriptures. I don't think anyone any longer questions the fact that Jesus was a historical person. The facts are undeniable. The evidence that Jesus lived is as good as the evidence that Augustus Caesar lived. And I don't know of anyone who denies the fact that he, that he died, even if he didn't die on a cross. Uh, 2,000 years, almost 2,000 years have passed, and he certainly would be dead by now if he were a mere human being. But actually, I don't know that anyone denies the fact that he was crucified on a, on a Roman cross. Again, the facts are undeniable. He died a terribly painful, excruciatingly painful death on a cross. But so did thousands of other people. That was the, the Roman army's favorite form of punishment, this exquisite death, as they described it, on a, on a cross. They were used to nailing people to a cross. But what people did not know as they stood at the foot of the cross and what people do not know today and perhaps you do not know either, what happened on that cross was extraordinary. 
This was not a mere man who was dying on a cross. This man was dying for your sins and for mine. This is what theologians call a substitutionary atonement, an exchange of value. Our sins are placed on him, and we are given his righteousness. As Paul puts it, he was made sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That's the explanation for that that cry on the cross that we saw, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The reason our Lord was forsaken was because he was bearing the sins of the world and the Father walked away. The Father turned his back on him. His Father could not have anything to do with, with sin. and So he cried out in desolation and loneliness, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Actually, that sense of aloneness originated, uh, it began earlier in the garden when Luke tells us he began to feel very heavy is the way most of the translations uh, put it, but the word means to be away from home. He began to be homesick, feeling the withdrawal of the Father as, as the sins of the world were, were placed upon him. He was forsaken by God so that we might never have to be forsaken. But what we have to understand is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. That cross, which was the the death of Christ, was the death of God. That's mystery. We don't understand it. So him puts it. Just mystery all, the immortal dies. How, how can it be? How can it be? I can't explain it. All I can tell you is what motivated it. It was motivated by love. The way the cross is usually explained is something like this. Man is so bad, and God was so mad that somebody had to pay. But that ignores the fact that God was in Christ, that he himself was hanging on that, that cross, paying the price for our sin. It was, it was love that put him there. Paul tells us that... Uh, His death was according to the scriptures. The only scripture that Paul had was the Old Testament. The New Testament was not yet written. There are portions of it, perhaps in circulation, but not gathered in any body of literature that we could describe as the New Testament. The only scripture that Paul had was the Old Testament. The Old Testament is replete with these intimations of of Messiah's death, the passage that was read earlier in Isaiah 53, written some 800 years before Jesus came, point to the fact that someone was going to come and and offer up his his life for us. And perhaps the most vivid prefiguring of that coming was what happened in the tabernacle or the temple, depending on what period of Israel's history you're concerned with. Head head of a home, the house, uh, head of a household would... uh, bring a, a lamb, a spotless lamb, a lamb without any marks or flaws, a, a lamb that was perfectly healthy, its fur was not blotched in any way. It had to be an absolutely perfect lamb, prefiguring the absolutely perfect one who was to come, who was without sin. And uh, that man would place his hands on the head of the lamb, and as the Hebrew text puts it, he, was, he would lean the entire weight of his body on that lamb, rest his weight on the lamb, and and he would confess his sins and the sins of his household. And 
And then that lamb would be, would be sacrificed, give up its life. And much later, John the Baptist pointed to Jesus. And he said to his disciples, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, the Lamb that had prefigured the coming of the Savior for hundreds of years was finally embodied in, in this one that, uh, that we call Jesus. He died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. And then he was buried, because that's what you do with things that are dead. We have so sanitized the, the, the process of death and burial today that we're, we don't really understand why it was necessary to make this statement today. Mortuaries do that, that sort of thing. But back then, it was the family that prepared the body for death, and there was an enormous amount of sorrow and pain in, in placing that body into the grave. I was watching a, uh, a video just this past week and, uh, in, in the in the course of the story, there was a casket that was being lowered into the ground. And it suddenly occurred to me, one of these days, my carcass is going to be in a casket, and I will be lowered into that grave. And a cold chill went down my, my spine when I thought of that uh, inevitable fact. And we don't like to think about those sorts of things, but that's just one of those hard facts we keep running our heads up against. And one of these days, I'll go down into that into the ground and it's humiliating to end up under the ground but our Lord understands he's been there and according to a couple of the authors of New Testament books our Lord not only went into the ground he went to hell Dorothy Sayers puts it when he became a man he played the man he went all the way our sin sent him to hell, and he experienced the horror and the terror of eternal judgment. There is no time in eternity. So for him, he did not experience merely a brief time there. He experienced all the terror, all the horror of the judgment that should have been ours. And then, as Paul goes on to say, the third statement in the gospel is that he did not remain there Long before our Lord came to earth, David had written a psalm, Psalm 16, in which he said that God would not permit his Holy One to see corruption. In Jewish thought, the body began to experience corruption after the third day. And I think that's where Paul gets this statement that a resurrection on the third day is embedded in the Old Testament because uh, it was literally true. God's Holy One did not see corruption. His body was raised on, on the third day. And that's, what's, that's what puts the seal of approval on the work that he did on the cross. You see, death is not just our lot. Death is our sentence. The wages of sin is death. We die because we're sinful. And the fact that our Lord was raised from the dead was God's stamp of approval on what the Son had done. He was raised, as Paul puts it, for our justification. It's God's word to us that you're all right. I've paid the price for your sin. One other word on the cross is it's literally one word in Greek. It is finished. 
Our Lord internalized all the sin of the world, all of my sin, all of your sin, the sin of your past, the sins of the present, the sins of this afternoon, the sins of the rest of your life. He took all of that sin on himself. And as Peter puts it, he bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. That's what takes the sting out of death. Death no longer can hold us in its, in its grip because the penalty for sin has been paid. Now, there's a fourth statement in the gospel. I think very often when we talk about the gospel, we leave it with those first three statements. He died for our sins. He was buried and he rose again, according to the scriptures. But uh, I believe that there is actually a fourth statement. And he appeared. He appeared. During the days after his resurrection, our Lord appeared on a number of occasions to a number of different people. And Paul gathers together just a few of them here. I don't think his purpose here is primarily apologetic. He's not arguing for the fact of the resurrection because he was too close to the event. And I, I believe the people in Corinth didn't need to be persuaded that Jesus had risen from the dead. They had some other problems that we'll talk about later when we come back to this, this chapter. They had spiritualized the resurrection. But uh, they didn't have any problem believing that Jesus had risen from the dead because, as Paul points out, a number of people had seen him. The apostles had seen him, and they were preaching, stating the fact that he had appeared to them. And either they were colossal liars or they were crazy, or they had actually seen him and they didn't appear to be crazy and the character of their lives precluded their being false witnesses. And then uh, most uh, impressive was the fact that our Lord appeared to 500 people at one time. This couldn't be mass hysteria. Most of whom, Paul says, are still alive. Some had been martyred. Some had died natural deaths. But most of them were still around. And I, and I suppose what Paul would have gone on to say, if, if he'd had time, is if you write, I'll give you their addresses and you can call them and check this out. Think for a moment, if someone told you that John F. Kennedy rose from the dead, see, that's less than 30 or a little over 30 years ago. When Paul wrote this letter, it was between 25 and 30 years from the time of Jesus' resurrection. It'd be very easy to prove that John F. Kennedy never rose from the dead. You could exhume the body or there'd be other ways in which you could prove that he was not living regardless of what people said. But the, the fact that Jesus rose from the dead was a historical fact. It was true, and 500 people could attest to that, uh, to that fact. And then there were the apostles, the other apostles. First, <coughs> pardon me, our Lord appeared to what Paul calls the 12. Actually, there were only 10 on that, uh, gathered on that occasion. Judas was already dead. Thomas was not present. But uh, the 12, is uh, that's just the word, the formal word, the technical word for Jesus' uh, apostles. And then there were other apostles that Jesus had appointed and sent out with authority to preach in his name. And, and Jesus had appeared to them. And actually, his first appearance was to a group of women. But um, I, I think there's a, a reason why Paul gathers together these particular witnesses, though he may have had something of an apologetic uh, purpose in mind. I really think there are three names that he wanted to center on, Peter and James and Paul himself. I can always identify with Peter. He, he was always getting things wrong, putting his foot in his mouth. And never could quite 
get it right. And our Lord just continued to have the most tender love for Peter, the most wonderful, gracious spirit toward him. As they were gathered together in the upper room, the Lord had just said, someone's going to betray me. And, and Peter, with typical self-confidence, said, not I, Lord, no way. I'm, you can count on me. Everybody else might fail, but uh, not I. And Jesus said to him, uh, in complete awareness of Peter's self-confidence and therefore his the likelihood that he would fail, he said, Peter, you're, you're going to deny me three times before, before the cock crows, before the morning. And Peter went out again, believing that he would never deny the Lord. But he did, and the cock did crow, and, and our Lord looked at him, Luke says. And that must have been a wonderfully tender look. I don't think he scowled or frowned, pulled a face. I, I, I think there was so much love and tenderness in our Lord's eyes, as though to say, Peter, I, I told you so, but I still love you. It was that wonderful, gracious response that, that broke Peter's heart. Put his face in his hands, and he wept bitterly. And uh, then when our Lord did burst out of the tomb on that first Easter morning, one of the first things he said to the women that he appeared to is, Go tell Peter. And I say, Why Peter? Because I think Peter had given up. I think Peter thought that he had gone too far, that, that his sin was so great that his Lord could never forgive him. And that's why Jesus said to the women, go, go tell Peter. It's all right. It's okay. I'm risen. And then our Lord appeared to Peter, Paul says. Ah, I wish I could have been there on that occasion. What a wonderful occasion. I'm sure the Lord lavish love on this, uh, on this young man on that occasion. And then much later, as they were gathered around a fire up in Galilee, the Lord said three times to Peter, Peter, do you love me? Each time corresponding to one of Peter's denials, Peter, do you love me? Oh, Lord, you know I love you. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. Peter, do you love me? You know I love you. Peter understood something of the grace of of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why he writes so much about it in his book. That's why he, he puts at the end of one of his little letters, grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace is the only environment in which we can grow. We don't grow in an environment of, of law and lashings and demands and insistent. We, we grow in the atmosphere of that wonderful, loving grace of our Lord who understands the stuff of which we're made, understands our proclivity to deny him and to move away from him and, 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 and to, to be unable to, to be what we want to be for his sake. He, he understands. The second person to whom he appeared, and I don't have time to say much about James except to point out that James was his brother in the flesh, his half-brother. And uh, he was indifferent. To our Lord, he thought he was crazy. Really had very little to do with him. And he represents so many people that I know who are just indifferent to spiritual things. But it's interesting to me that our Lord appeared to James. And that was the turning point for James. His disdain 
turned into faith and he became the leader of the church in the city of Jerusalem and eventually was martyred for his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord broke through that, that indifference as a result of the resurrection. The third person to whom Paul refers is uh, himself. He gets real frank and autobiographical here and he said, he, he appeared to me, describes himself as an abortion of a man. Actually, he uses the, the, the translation as one born out of due time. But he's not describing the fact that he, he came later. He was a Johnny-come-lately. He rather is using a term that was a term of abuse in those days. It's the word for a miscarriage. Not the miscarriage, but the fetus that's miscarried. And what Paul is saying, I am nothing more than a miscarriage of a man. And here is this self-righteous, uh, angry, hostile, ugly little man going out, as he said, to, to try to destroy the church, to try to undermine the gospel. And he was arrested on his, uh, his journey up to Damascus, and he saw the risen Lord face to face, and he fell on his, on his hands and knees, and he worshipped him as his Lord. And as I think of myself and, I, and as I think of the people I know here in this crowd, I think we fall somewhere within one of those three groups. We're either actively hostile to, to spiritual things or we're indifferent. Or We have a heart for the Lord. We're trying to move in this direction, but we find ourselves struggling and failing a great deal. And I just want you to understand that the good news is that the Lord has gone more than halfway to reach you and to touch you and He's just as much alive today as he was in, in the days of his flesh and in the days of his resurrection body. He's alive. He's invisible to us, but he's, he's present. He's here. He's reaching out and touching you with the same grace that he extended to Paul and to James and to Peter. C.H. Sisson, who's a man I know nothing about, I just happened to pick up this quote from him, said, it's the vain, the ambitious, the highly sexed who are the natural prey of the incarnate Christ. He will not rest until we find rest in him. I wonder if it's ever crossed your mind that you're placed here on this earth for one purpose and one purpose alone, and that's to understand the gospel and to know our Lord Jesus Christ. And if we do not him to know our Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't make any difference what else we accomplish. Our lives are a failure. We have missed the whole point of life. Jesus puts it this way. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. 